Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast of the Clayton Yider Institute of International Trade and Finance at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Kenneth Smith-Ramos. He served as Mexico's chief negotiator for the modernization of the North American Free Trade Agreement that led to the signing of the USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. Currently, he is a partner at Agon, a consulting firm based in Mexico City. Ken, it's an honor to have you on the show today to help us understand Mexico's perspectives on the U.S.-Mexico trading relationship and on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. As of this recording here in late November, it does not look like USMCA will be brought up for a vote in the U.S. House of Representatives this year. And we're going to talk about the dynamics surrounding that situation. But first, I'd like to set the stage for our listeners for a moment. The U.S. and Mexico are both very important trading partners for each other. Mexico is the number two destination for U.S. goods exports and is the number one destination for exports from the state of Nebraska, where I'm sitting right now. And shifting directions, the U.S. is Mexico's most important export market, with about 80 percent of Mexican exports coming to the U.S. So this is a really robust trading relationship, one that has become even more so over the last 25 years since NAFTA went into force. 25 years ago, merchandise trade between the U.S. and Mexico has increased sixfold. You began your career working for Mexico's NAFTA negotiating team in 1992, and you served more recently as Mexico's chief negotiator on the U.S. MCA. So I'd like to start by asking you, in your view, how did those two negotiating experiences, which were separated by more than 20 years, differ from each other in terms of substance and in terms of the surrounding political environment? Well, thank you very much, Jill. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today, and uh, thank you for the invitation. And indeed, I think that uh, the way we should start looking at this is uh, in order to understand the results of the USMCA versus the NAFTA, we have to understand that, uh, you know, 20-some years ago, when Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. decided to to negotiate a free trade agreement, there was a consensus, a a joint view, a shared view of the three countries that uh, creating a free trade area in North America would be beneficial for the region because it would promote trade flows and investment flows into the region. So we had a lot of differences in terms of how to accomplish that, and it was a very difficult negotiation, but the premise, the basic guiding principle was the same. Uh, that changed uh, 25 years later when we began the process of uh, renegotiating or modernizing our trade agreement because our largest partner, the United States, the most powerful economy in the world, came to the table with a different view, a view that it did not have for the past 25 years in terms of international trade. And it came to the table with a position that free trade agreements were hurting the United States, that NAFTA in particular had hurt the U.S. economy, despite all of the empirical evidence that showed that it has been a great success for all three countries. But regardless of the evidence, the U.S. came to the table with that view that uh, it needed to fix a problem that was hurting the U.S. economy. And that, of course, uh, complicated matters in terms of the political environment between Mexico and the U.S. Uh, You know that, of course, in addition to this position regarding trade, uh, then-candidate Trump in 2016 uh, was very aggressive in, in his statements regarding the relationship with Mexico. Uh, and, and pushed actively for the uh, creation of a border wall, etc. So that made it a very difficult environment. The U.S. talked about fixing the agreement, and Mexico and Canada shared a view that we needed to build upon 25 years of successful free trade. So that, that was sort of how the beginning of the negotiation was set up, and it made it difficult because we were, in some instances, 
you know, had very strong differences uh, with the U.S. regarding the approach that we should take in the negotiation. Okay, so let's dive into a little bit more of the the substance of the USMCA negotiation. And I'd like to start by asking you about autos and auto parts. These figure very prominently in the story of U.S.-Mexico trade, as, as you know very well. And just for the benefit of our listeners, for example, in 2018, autos and auto parts together accounted for about a third of U.S. imports from Mexico. That's over $110 billion. In that same year, 2018, the U.S. exported to Mexico about $20 billion worth of auto parts, about 11% of all U.S. exports to Mexico. There were auto rules of origin in place in the NAFTA, which are rules that require that a certain um, amount of the content of a motor vehicle be produced with parts sourced in North America in order for that vehicle to receive preferential treatment. Um, But I want to ask you specifically about one of the changes that was made in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement deal regarding the labor value of content, specifically that about 40% of the content of an automobile has to be made by workers making $16 per hour. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, how many Mexican-made cars meet that standard already? Will it, what will it take to reach that standard? And, and, and is that a helpful provision in terms of raising workers' wages as part of Mexico's domestic policies? Well, I think that in order to understand this provision, it's important to see what was the uh, the main objective of the U.S. in, in, in the uh, autos rules of origin negotiation. The U.S. came to the table with a with a uh, idea that uh, most of the investment taking place in North America and in a growing uh, North American auto sector was going to Mexico, and that we ha- that the U.S. had a a large deficit in that sector with Mexico and that it was hurting the U.S. economy. We always question whether that was the case, whether the you, you can measure the uh, the benefit of a relationship based on a trade deficit, but that was the position of the U.S. So what they tried to do is to make the rules of origin stricter so that most of the investment taking place in North America would take place in the United States and that there would be fewer products from other regions of the world coming into the auto sector in North America. It was, let's say, one of the toughest parts uh, of the negotiation because what we wanted to do, we were in favor of trying to make the rules of origin a bit stricter so that there would be more integration, more regional product uh, used in the production of vehicles. And so we did increase the regional value content from 62.5% to 75% and introduced new rules on a certain percentage, 70% of the steel and aluminum used in automobiles should come from North America. We feel that that's positive because it's part of of, uh, integrating further our industries in the auto sector. However, the U.S. also placed uh, two uh, two, uh, uh, suggestions from the beginning which had to do with, on the one hand, establishing the salaries in Mexico for the automotive sector through the trade agreement. And that is impossible. That's something that you cannot uh, regulate through a trade agreement. And uh, the second issue that they had was trying to uh, make sure that there was 50% domestic content from uh, from the U.S. In, uh, in automotive goods in North America, which breaks with the concept of a regional rule of origin. What matters at the end of the day is whether products are from Mexico, Canada, and the U.S., and you can't set, set up a domestic uh, content rule. So what we did, we negotiated with the U.S. very intensively. This was one of the last issues to be resolved. And instead of having this provision that tries to establish or to determine salaries in Mexico for the auto sector through a trade agreement, we agreed to a provision that establishes that a certain percentage of the vehicle has to come from regions that pay $16 or higher. Right now, those regions are, of course, the U.S. and Canada. So we established a level that is acceptable for assemblers in Mexico because they source from the U.S., from Canada, and, of course, from Mexico when they assemble vehicles in Mexico. 
And that percentage right now is uh, between 18 and 25%. It was increased to 40% in the, uh, in the rules of origin of the USMCA, but we feel that's something that uh, the uh, auto assemblers in Mexico can comply with. It is something that at the end of the day will help push uh, wages uh, gradually higher in a natural way in, in Mexico, not in the way that originally the U.S. was intending to do so, which was by decree, just establishing a number of what the salary should be in Mexico, but rather doing it in a way that allows auto assemblers in North America to continue to produce competitive vehicles vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. So we feel that it's a provision that at the end of the day will push salaries and wages higher in North America and that will benefit all three countries. Okay. Thank you, Ken, for that, that perspective there. That's really interesting to hear. So we're recording this interview almost exactly one year since the signing of USMCA, which occurred on November 30th, 2018. Since then, Mexico has ratified the agreement, and, and that happened back in June. The U.S. has not, and Canada is waiting to act in tandem with the United States, by all reports. One of the sticking points in terms of how the U.S. Congress, uh, the House of Representatives, is looking at this has been around labor provisions in the agreement and their enforceability. This is a major item that a group of Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives has been negotiating with the U.S. Trade Representative's office about. And the latest, at least that I've seen as of this recording, is that the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met with the USTR, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, on November 21st. And afterwards, a spokesperson for Speaker Pelosi said, quote, We can reach a, an agreement on USMCA when the trade representative makes the agreement enforceable for America's workers, unquote. Now, you had written um, in a recent piece earlier in November um, in a Mexican publication that even if an agreement is reached in the U.S. Congress that satisfies the demands of the Democrats, that does not mean the result is acceptable to Mexico. So let's just break this down a bit and, and help us you know, walk through this from the Mexican perspective. So first, when it comes to labor provisions in USMCA, what are those provisions aimed at achieving? One of the most important elements in the USMCA vis-a-vis -vis versus the original NAFTA is that we introduced disciplines that make the agreement uh, more sustainable, more inclusive, and it, they include disciplines that are aimed at, on the one hand, strengthening the defense of worker rights and then the protection of the environment. And so what we did, we took the side agreements that were uh, that existed in the NAFTA on labor and the environment, and we added new provisions. We strengthened, for example, on the labor side, uh, the provisions that prevent child labor or forced labor. Uh, we, the three countries, agreed to make sure that we would combat any type of discrimination at the workplace or violence, either against women or any other workers. We protect migrant worker rights. So I can tell you that the labor chapter of the USMCA is the most advanced labor chapter in any trade agreement that has ever been negotiated. So that, that is a very important piece of information because we have to understand that in the discussions that are going on between the Democrats and the White House regarding uh, the, the USMCA and its prospect for ratification, uh, some Democrats are saying that the provisions are not enough. I can tell you that they are. They, they even what the Democrats had asked for in the original NAFTA and in the, in, during the negotiation of the USMCA, Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. went beyond that. So we have the most advanced chapter. However, some Democrats are pushing actively, and they are uh, negotiating very intensively with USDR. 
that there be more uh, an ability for the U.S. to enforce the agreement directly. In other words, you know, make sure that the U.S., for example, can make uh, uh, inspections to Mexican plants to make sure that Mexico is complying with the rules established in the labor chapter. The problem with that is that already in the chapter, we have established rules that determine what happens if a party believes that another member of the agreement is not complying with the provisions. And there's a whole process of consultation and dispute settlement, in other words, the establishment of impartial panels that will determine uh, in, in an impartial manner whether a country is complying or not. This idea that some Democrats are pushing and that the AFL-CIO has been pushing actively of having unilateral visits by the U.S. and and a process of certification by the U.S. as to whether Mexico is complying, we see it as unfair. We see it as a mechanism that would, uh, in a way, bypass the uh, transparent and impartial mechanisms of dispute settlement, and it would allow one country to decide unilaterally if another is complying with the agreement. So we see that as a bridge too far. It's an extension that goes way beyond what any of the, uh, of the NAFTA members has agreed to in any other trade agreement. And it worries us because we have seen in the Trump administration a tendency to impose uh, protectionist measures. Let's be very frank. When it came to the national security measures on steel and aluminum or the threats that President Trump made regarding uh, the increase in tariffs unless Mexico negotiated a deal on immigration. So we have to be very careful that the labor chapter, which is aimed at uh, protecting worker rights and will do so in a very effective manner, we have to make sure that this chapter does not become an excuse for, to have protectionist measures imposed by the U.S. against Mexico. So that's one of the key elements that is being negotiated right now. And I did emphasize in that article that you allude to that regardless of the agreement that the Democrats and the White House come to in these next few days or weeks, Mexico and Canada have to be in agreement with it. We have to look at the results of, of that negotiation domestically and make sure that's something that Canada and Mexico can approve. And let's take into consideration that Mexico has already ratified the agreement. We, we did that in June of, of uh, this year. So if there's any changes to the text, which we have opposed, any changes to the text, we would have to pass it again through our Senate, and that would be a difficult uh, process. So we believe we have the most advanced uh, labor provisions in any trade agreement, and that what the U.S. should do is just conclude their domestic negotiations. Any uh, concerns that uh, Democrats may have on how the agreement will be implemented can be addressed later through uh, administrative procedures. Let's not take the uh, USMCA as hostage uh, because of these uh, uh, allegations that the U.S. needs more provisions on labor. That would be a mistake. So you've <clears throat> excuse me, anticipated several other questions that I had there for you and, and addressed several, but I, I want to, on this last point here, um, regarding with how these labor f- provisions would be enforced and you know whether uh, Mexico would have to, in, in, in essence, re-ratify the agreement if, if changes, certain changes were made um, that weren't agreed to in the beginning. Um, now, you're in the private sector now, but do you, do you know if there have been consultations between the U.S. and Mexico as this negotiation between House Democrats and the U.S. Trade Representative's Office are occurring? Um, or is there a risk that when a deal, if, if a deal is reached, that at that time there could be some um, provisions in there that Mexico would not favor and this could cause a delay in, in um, getting this deal in force? Well, we do know that the current administration in Mexico is in constant communication with uh, USDR Robert Lighthizer uh, to follow the, uh, the discussion.
discussions that are taking place domestically in the U.S. between Democrats and, and, and the Trump administration. And the Mexican government uh, has stated, for example, that it would not be in a position to accept these unilateral visits or other uh, elements that, re that represent further commitments on labor in, in the agreement. So the Mexican government has been clear on that. It's, of course, a domestic negotiation going on between Democrats and, and the White House. So uh, Mexico does not participate directly in those. But I, we do know that the Mexican government is looking at this very carefully, as are the Canadians as well, to make sure that whatever uh, is agreed domestically is then shared with, uh, with Mexico and that we can uh, be in a position to determine whether it's something that would be acceptable. Because at the end of the day, the ideal scenario is for the U.S. to conclude its process, to ratify the USMCA as it is written right now, and to deal with any concerns that emerge in this discussion with Democrats through administrative measures that can be addressed later, once the agreement is already in place. Because the optimal scenario is for the agreement to be ratified and to come into effect in early 2020. Okay, so you've mentioned also that the labor provisions in the USMCA are the most advanced labor provisions ever in any free trade agreement. Are labor provisions something that have come up in other free trade agreements that Mexico has in place with other trading partners? Are those part of that? Um, or is what's in place in USMCA really dramatically different from the status quo? No, we have had uh, provisions on trade since we negotiated the NAFTA originally 25 years ago. You know, back then there was a limited scope of the types of disciplines that you would include in trade agreements. Nowadays, that's one of the big advantages of the USMCA or the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that we also negotiated and already implemented and also our modernized trade agreement with the European Union, where we introduced new chapters, for example, uh, how to help uh, small and medium-sized enterprises take advantage of trade agreements, uh, chapters on digital trade, chapters on new elements of the economy that are essential today for today's world economy, but that didn't exist 25 years ago. So that's what we're adding to the USMCA. And in addition to those, let's call them economic provisions, we're adding stronger social provisions on labor, on environment. There's a chapter on anti-corruption, combating uh, corruption practices in North America is very important and helps our own domestic efforts in Mexico. So uh, the, uh, the answer is yes, labor provisions have been discussed in, in different chapters and in, in different trade agreements throughout the, uh, the history when we have uh, begun liberalizing trade 25 years ago. And so what we're seeing now is we're seeing state-of-the-art uh, disciplines that are established in the USMCA. It is uh, very important to take into consideration that now these provisions that we have established and that I've described that protect worker rights, the, in a way that they had never been done so before in trade agreements, are also uh, they also have peace. In other words, they are subject to the same dispute settlement mechanisms and as any other parts of the agreement. And that wasn't the case in the original NAFTA. It had a more sort of a lax system that uh, that made it harder to have specific labor uh, cases brought against members of the NAFTA. This time around, it reflects Mexico's evolution over the last 25 years. It's done major labor reform in Mexico. And in fact, we have introduced, in addition to the disciplines that I mentioned as to how to protect worker rights, 
We also introduced something that reflects our own labor reform, which has to do with having more transparency and democracy in union proceedings. That means making sure that collective bargaining agreements have, uh, are, are voted by all workers, that there is transparency in how union leaders are elected, and many of the things that are very important to, to, to workers in Mexico and in all countries in the world are now disciplines that are established in the USMCA. That's why I refer to it as the most advanced labor provisions of any trade agreement. Mm-hmm. Okay. Switching gears just a little bit to the surrounding political environment around USMCA, as we've already said, the Mexican Senate passed USMCA back in June. Why do you think it was passed so much earlier there than in the United States? Is What is the debate like in Mexico domestically? How How is the agreement viewed by the Mexican public there? Well, this is interesting because going back to the original history of the NAFTA, Traditionally, uh, we have faced difficulties in Mexico, as is the case in the U.S. and other countries in the world, in convincing the population of the benefits of free trade, despite the big economic impact in terms of the the increases in in exports, the the radical increase in foreign direct investment. There is a perception in, in the general public opinion that free trade agreements may just benefit certain sectors of the economy. And this is false, but you have to sort of always work to try to convince people that trade agreements bring all of these benefits. And so uh, it's interesting that one of the aspects of the USMCA negotiation that was interesting is that the, the moment that President Trump, candidate Trump and then President Trump threatened to pull out of the NAFTA, that helped to rally the Mexican people behind the NAFTA. There was a realization that uh, it wasn't because of something Mexico was doing that NAFTA might collapse. It was the U.S. that was threatening to pull out of this very successful trading unit. And we saw a big rallying uh, of, of uh, you know, the private sector, uh, the U.S. Congress, governors, uh, academic institutions in Mexico defending the NAFTA during the, the USMCA negotiations. And so one thing that was interesting is that uh, what we did while we were negotiating is that, as you know, the negotiation extended past our presidential elections, where uh, the left-wing party won in July of last year, and we were still negotiating the USMCA. And one thing that we did, which turned out to be uh, a positive uh, thing, was to include as part of the negotiating team, the transition team of the new Mexican administration that was coming in, an administration that uh, had traditionally not been uh, very much in favor of trade agreements, but that very early on in the campaign uh, uh, voiced its support for the NAFTA and for the USMCA negotiations. So we included the transition people from the new administration in the negotiations, and we negotiated hand-in-hand and closed the deal with the U.S. and Canada. What did this do? It helped us. Because once we left office and the new administration entered in, in the government in December 1st, it was able to have legitimacy in going to the new Mexican Senate and, and explaining why the USMCA was good for the nation because they had participated in it and why it would bring strong results for our economy in the future. And that helped uh, the administration of President Manuel Lopez Obrador obtained its ratification rather quickly in Mexico in June. It was approved with 114 votes in favor and five votes against. So it was uh, an overwhelming victory in the Mexican Senate. And it sends the signal that there is a strong consensus now in Mexico that Mexico has to remain an open economy and that free trade within North America has benefited our, 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 uh, our population enormously. Okay, that's interesting. That seems like a, a wise strategy to to include the transition team and the negotiating team. That's really interesting to hear about. Um, zooming out just a little bit, I'd like to ask you 
a bigger picture question. So Mexico's trade policy overall is often described as very open. Mexico has about about 50 free trade agreement partners. That's more than double um, what the U.S. has. Um, and I wonder if given all of the trade policy uncertainty that's been swirling around the globe since about 2017, has Mexico's longstanding openness helped your country weather any negative impacts of that uncertainty? Um, or ha- or has Mexico had to take any other steps to, to manage that risk of ins- that's created by the uncertainty or, or diversify its trading partners? Or perhaps the en- enter- entry into force of CPTPP has been a factor. So how would you um, describe that overall um, kind of um, preparation of Mexico to weather uncertainty or, or any steps that the countries had to take to deal with it? Well, that is very interesting because, indeed, Mexico has pursued a strategy of trade liberalization over the years. It's almost three decades that we have been pursuing this, and and it has spanned the whole political spectrum. I mean, we've had uh, uh, central parties, uh, left of center, as we have now. We we have had more of a right-wing party in in power as well. There has been a consistency in in the trade liberalization position that, that the Mexican governments have pursued. And I think that has to do with the fact that throughout the 70s and 80s, we lived firsthand uh, through the shortcomings of protectionism. We were one of the most closed economies in the world, and as the world began to to globalize economically, uh, Mexico began to fall behind. And we had uh, one of the toughest economic crises ever in Mexico in the 1980s as a result. So Mexico realizes now that you know, 70% uh, of, of our GDP is, is equivalent to our international trade. That's, that's how much we're generating in international trade. Uh, it is essential for Mexico. And as I said, you know, the, the rapid approval of the USMCA by a left-wing dominated Congress in Mexico reveals that consensus that, that the free trade policy in Mexico has been successful. Of course, there is a tendency worldwide, and we, we see it in the United States, we see it in, uh, in, in the process of Brexit or in Eastern Europe, where there's a lot of challenging free uh, uh, market eco- economics and the challenging, of course, whether free trade agreements work for the population. And I think it's important for Mexico to continue sending the signal that we're an open economy, that it, that free trade benefits the population. Of course, you have to accompany free trade with domestic structural reforms that help you get the most out of your economy and to make sure that the benefits of free trade trickle down to everybody in, in society small and medium-sized enterprises, and different regions. We have a lot of regions in Mexico that are very successful. The central region of the country, uh, the north of Mexico, have attracted enormous amounts of foreign direct investment, and wages in the exporting sector pay almost 45% more than salaries in the rest of the economy. So those are obviously very good results for Mexico. But still, for example, the southeast of the country still uh, is where you find the, the highest proportions of uh, uh, rural population, uh, low salaries, uh, high indexes of uh, lack of education. So we need to make sure that we bring the benefits of free trade to different regions of the country. And that's, what it, that's why free trade agreements and trade liberalization have to be accompanied by domestic structural reforms in education, labor, health, energy, etc. That's what Mexico has been trying to do over the last six years as well. And just picking up on that last point there about how you have to um, kind of pair uh, trade policy with, with investments in education and, and infrastructure, etc. Is, is trade policy talked about in that way in Mexico, um, just generally speaking with the public, where you, you link those different policy areas together? Because I don't think that happens here in the United States 
quite a lot. Um, perhaps it should happen more um, potentially, but I wonder if it's talked about that way, generally speaking, in Mexico. Well, it, it is a challenge, and many times uh, politicians fall into the trap of, of uh, calling for uh, a more focus on the domestic economy rather than the international economy, which is a, a trap, and it's, it's a, really something that you cannot do today in, in today's globalized economy. You know, whatever you do in the international arena can benefit uh, your domestic economy as long as you have uh, clear rules in your own country regarding, for example, eliminating barriers to entry, having a strong competition commission that allows you to, to combat monopolies and antitrust or bureaucracy and red tape. So it has to go hand in hand, the trade policy with those uh, public policy decisions that you make domestically to really free up uh, the potential of, uh, of the domestic economy. Uh, oftentimes, it, it, we get into a discussion that is uh, just politicized and polarized, where people try to blame whatever negative uh, impacts uh, the, the uh, national economy is having on international trade, which is unfair, but it is something that exists, and the governments have the responsibility of making sure that we're all that the, 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 the government is showing the benefits of free trade for the majority of the population and extending those benefits. So I think those are the, the real challenges going forward. And in the USMCA, one of the things that we try to do is to introduce these new disciplines that include more regions and more sectors of the population into trade. And a very important element, we introduced a periodic review of the agreement where elements can be analyzed as far as how the agreement is uh, being implemented and whether there are changes, new disciplines to be introduced or different uh, elements that may need to be renegotiated in the agreement. And that will involve doing public consultations and involving civil society in deciding how the agreement must be shaped or reshaped in the future. And that's something that the original NAFTA did not include. And I think that it's very useful for the governments of the three countries to have these mechanisms of periodic review so that people can gain confidence and, and believe that they can actually impact the way these trade agreements are affecting their everyday lives. So those are the, the, some of the elements that were introduced in the USMCA to try to bring the trade agreements closer to the people and make them feel that they can have a voice in how these trade agreements get implemented. That's a <clears throat> excuse me. That's a good perspective to share there in the periodic review as a as a mechanism for more public input. So thanks for bringing that up too. That's useful to to hear. Um, the last question that I ask every guest on this podcast is, what are you reading these days? A book or an article or something along those lines that's particularly striking to you? Something about trade. Well, most recently, I, I read a very long interview with President Emmanuel Macron from France in The Economist, where he talks about many of the issues that we've discussed in, in this podcast, having to do with economic uncertainty worldwide, and the fact that uh, the world is changing dramatically. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of challenging of, uh, of the impacts of globalization. Uh, in some countries in Eastern Europe, you, you're even seeing uh, a return to the past where societies are starting to challenge the benefits of the free market. Uh, free press, etc. And in this interview, President Macron talks about the fact that people have to get used to the fact that uh, the U.S. is withdrawing, in a way, from the international stage, both economically and politically. And he makes an appeal for the European Union, for example, which obviously is an essential player in international trade, to remain open but no longer dependent on some of the key allies that it had. In this case, is referring specifically to the U.S. And that's a very interesting lesson, I think, for Mexico as well, because we're seeing that uh, the, the 
the fear or the uncertainty surrounding the global economy is something that is perhaps here to stay. It's not just a, a phenomenon that has to do with a particular president, whether it's Trump, whether it's uh, somebody else in, in the European Union. It, it is, it's not an anomaly that, uh, that what we're going through in terms of the uh, economic uncertainty and, and concerns with globalization. So countries need to adapt. We need to make sure that, for example, in the case of Mexico, that we continue the policy of trade liberalization, while at the same time we do strengthen our domestic economy and are ready to, to act in the international stage, even if the top player in international uh, trade, which is the United States, seems to be withdrawing from the international stage. So I think that's a very important lesson, and we should continue uh, drumming up the message, at least in Mexico, that uh, it is precisely by engaging with the rest of the world, by showing that Mexico is an open economy, an economy that's open for business, that we will help our, our population increase their wages and their welfare. Ken, thank you so much for this interview today. I've learned a lot and just really appreciate you taking the time to share your all of your experience from being um, the lead negotiator on the USMCA for Mexico and, and drawing on all of the rest of your vast experience with trade policy uh, for your country. So thank you for, for being here today. We really appreciate this. I really appreciate it, Jill. It's been very enjoyable, and I hope we get a chance to do this again sometime. Likewise. We'll definitely have you back. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. A big thank you to Bryce Duskett and Rebel Seclocha for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yiterinstitute at unl.edu. That's y-e-u-t-t-e-r institute at unl.edu or follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore Geider. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Geider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.